Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Uh, I am joining you here from uh, Chile, Minnetonka, Minnesota, and uh, I'm also uh, joined, as often I am, by my friend Todd Waldron in Glens Falls, New York. I'm guessing he's in Glens Falls. Hello, everyone. I am. It's good to be here. And uh, a new voice uh, here on this episode, uh, young Matthew Williams. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing good, Mark. How are you? I'm I'm doing good. So Matt uh, is a media coordinator here at Modern Carnivore, does a lot of work behind the scenes for all of you listeners. So you have Matt to thank for uh, for the episodes getting out and uh, and all the magic behind the scenes. And we figured let's uh, let's have him come in front of the microphone uh, for this episode. So uh, today we're going to talk today's today's podcast is with Jeb Taylor. And so. Jeb is the founder of Jeb Taylor Knives. Uh, he's also the founder and president of the Midwest Knife Makers Guild, uh, which is how I stumbled across him originally uh, a few years ago. And um, and I, I asked him to come on the podcast because, uh, you know, I think a lot for a lot of new hunters and for any anybody who's out hunting, um, you know, when you think about an outdoor activity. Uh, if you're going into the woods or you're going out in the field, no matter what it is, you could be foraging, you could be going out to fish, you could be hunting. A knife is something you have to carry in all those, in all those situations. It's sort of like the universal, uh, implement for most outdoor activities that you're going to be carrying with you. And so for that reason, it's, it's an important part of the, uh, of the hunting experience. And, um, and if you see what he is making, uh, uh, these days, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful blend of, I think a lot of these, these guys that are making knives these days, it's a blend of the functional with the, uh, with the artistic, uh, you know, some of them are, are just very functional. Others are, are definitely put a little bit of the, uh, form over the function with some really beautiful wood handles, Damascus, uh, steel, and, and a lot of different things. Um, so there's one type of hunting that, that I think the knife is probably more critical than most and, uh, and, and it's important that you're carrying it with you. And that is big game hunting. And we are right now in the heart of deer hunting season in a lot of areas of the country. Definitely here in Minnesota, we just, uh, uh, I think actually a lot of the state is closed uh, up north where I hunt. We have, uh, we have a third weekend. And so there's still opportunities to get out. And then we'll head into muzzleloader season. Um, some people are been out with the bows, but, uh, Todd, have you, yeah, you've been a busy man. I know. Have you, uh, have you gotten out to, to chase deer? Well, the highlight of my season so far is this past weekend, we did a mentored hunt, um, outside of Albany, New York with hunters of color. And so it was an amazing, amazing community and weekend. So Lydia Parker and Jimmy Flat from Hunters of Color came all the way from Oregon where they live in Corvallis. And uh, I think we had about eight new hunters lined up. And it was an incredible partnership between National Deer Association, uh, New York Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Hunters of Color, and, and the Nature Conservancy. So the Nature Conservancy had this property, set us up with blinds. And uh, we went through, uh, it was like a Thursday night through Sunday morning kind of event. And I am pumped up um, for the people that came out, for the community around it. It was great. We saw some deer. Uh, Nobody took a deer during this hunt, but somebody from the National Deer Association uh, donated one that they took uh, Saturday morning. So we walked through the whole processing and field dressing kind of scenario. Um, Brian Bird, my friend from New York BHA, did that. He's he's a butcher. Um, So it was... uh, it was really heartwarming to see all the smiles and to build that community and just, I'm humbled to be a part of it. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's my hunting season so far. 
Got next week off. Thanksgiving week's a good week. Uh, the deer are in rut right now. They're on their feet during the daylight hours. They're chasing does. Uh, there's still plenty of time in northern New York to hunt deer, and our season will extend through the first week of December. That is awesome. I totally forgot that you were going to do that hunt and be a mentor. I'm I'm really happy you did that. Uh, I met Jimmy and Lydia uh, last spring out in Montana. I should have been wearing my Hunters of Color t-shirt tonight that I that I bought from them. But uh, great people. I love what they're doing with their organization and getting people out there. And uh, I'm so glad you were part a part of it in New York. You know, you talk about the rut. Uh, you know, we... Uh, so we had opening weekend. I went up for and hunted uh, for several days up in north central Minnesota. And I don't know, we, we heard a lot of people getting deer in other areas of the state. I heard nary a shot on opening day. It was so quiet. And by the time we left camp, we had seven people hunting. We were 0 for 7. And, uh, you know, I saw, I saw two sets of, of, you know, does with, with yearlings. Uh, so it's about, about half a dozen deer, but not a single buck. And I think we were just a little off of the rut, just wasn't quite there yet. It was pretty warm. And, um, so I don't know, I'd like to try to get out there. I'd like to try to get out there one more time. I'm not sure if I will. Um, but, uh, there's, there's still a little bit of a time left here in Minnesota. I know a lot, some people are heading over to Wisconsin, but, um, how about you, Matt? How'd you do honey? Did you get out to I, I did pretty well, Mark. Um, I actually <laughs> shot, my, I actually shot my first whitetail this year. So yeah. I went out, yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, I went out opening a uh, gun opener here in Minnesota in Southern Minnesota, um, brought my. Mossberg 500 and um I was successful on first morning so which which was awesome more than you can ever hope for right and it must have been just a small little little yearling right <laughs> um no I'm proud to say it was not um you know it probably is not breaking any records but um I am very satisfied with the um the size of the buck that I I was able to harvest Absolutely, man. You, uh, I was so excited. I'm sitting in the deer stand Saturday morning and, uh, I, this, my, my phone dings and I pull it out and there's a picture. Matt's got uh, his buck. And I was just like, this is, this is so great. Um, first year, your, your own gun. Those, mm-hmm. those of you who follow us on, on Instagram or Facebook, you probably saw Matt and I were out, uh, maybe a month and a half ago and, and, uh, he got his, his first gun, bought his first mm-hmm. gun at a, uh, two barrel Mossberg system, mm-hmm. both, both the rifle barrel and the shot barrel. Right. And it obviously shoots straight. <laughs> I, I hit him right where I was aiming, which, uh, I was a little, uh, I was impressed and a little shocked at the same time. <laughs> so what what thoughts do you have to share with uh, with other new uh, new deer hunters about the about the experience? Well, um, I mean it's an experience that I, I mean I'll never forget. Mark and I we were talking about this. Um, you know, it just the whole. I mean, I sat there, so I was out obviously, you know, hour half hour before sunrise, and I sat all morning. It was a beautiful morning. Um, I was maybe a little chilly, but nothing like I usually sit through. So. I was out till 1130 and that half hour right before, um, I took the shot. So about 11 to 1130 was the most action I saw morning. It was, I mean, it was surreal because the, it wasn't, it was not a situation where the buck snuck up on me. You know, I, I saw him come in from a wave cause there was a doe in front of me. And so I saw him coming in for a ways and just, you know, thinking to myself, you know, wait, wait, wait you know, wait for a good shot, wait for him to come closer. And luckily he was trending that way. So, I mean, just the more time you have out there, the better your chances are and get a good morning. And half the fun is just watching the forest wake up. I had a swarm of chickadees around me that, you know, will live in my memory just as much as that buck will. So. 
That is great. Uh, I'm, I'm r- really couldn't be more happy for you. And and you got you got a full freezer. You just bought your first house. Yeah. And yeah. you got your freezer packed full. Did you buy a deep freeze yet? By the way, I I did not. I was looking at them today. Um, yeah, I was looking at Facebook Marketplace, Menards, all that, all that good stuff. And I haven't bought one yet. The 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 little freezer on the fridge is still holding all of it. But um, yeah, I just got the other half back from the 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 butcher that I took it to and um yeah now it's full I mean it's <laughs> so you butchered you butchered the majority of yourself you just took your scrap for for sausage and burger to it to a butcher, exactly correct? yep I wanted to make sure that I had some you know roasts and steaks and things that I could do some experimenting with because you know that that was my big piece of you know is getting into the the food side so you know I'm really excited to start you know, cooking with it and, and trying out different recipes and things like that. So yes, me and, uh, my friend, um, who, who's a little bit more, I shouldn't say a little bit, he's a lot more experienced deer hunter than I am. Um, we, we butchered the thing ourselves. Um, you know, the, we just took the scraps in plastic bags to, to the local butcher here in Hastings. So, um, yeah. Otherwise I have, I, I roll, I wrapped it myself, which I, I wrapped it. Here's my tip to, to new deer hunters. Wrap your meat twice <laughs> in the, in the butcher paper. I wrapped it once, put it all in the freezer. And then I went back, um, 20 minutes, half hour later and it was coming through. So I had to rewrap it all. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so that's my wrap, wrap, wrap it twice. You, you learn new stuff all the time with mm-hmm. the uh with that that process well that's amazing matt <clears throat> congratulations and you know your your comment about watching the forest wake up is certainly well taken uh that's an amazing experience and something that never gets old for me and uh, i love hearing you talk about your patience with waiting for that deer to come in and so that's not always easy even for people that have been hunting or for years and years you know you see a deer and it's exciting and having the having that uh maturity and that patience to wait for that shot it takes a lot of uh you know effort and patience there so sounds like everything came together and you did everything right and uh really happy for you that's amazing right thanks Todd. Did you butcher it in the in the garage or where where did you butcher it? We uh the I I want to say the front yard as as <laughs> but it, he lives in the country so his front yard's pretty big. We weren't in town, you know, butchering in the front yard, but it was it was in front of his house. Um he had a, a skid loader that we were able to lift it up on and we you know went to went to town. So I was just going to say I've been I've been known to uh to uh to hang a deer in in suburbia <laughs> and uh and it put spotlights on it while we film <laughs> so, right. i've seen some of those videos i've wondered uh i've wondered where those were <laughs> yeah people drive by they get a little some people are curious other people maybe maybe they're a little disturbed but uh hopefully right. uh, nobody gets too offended so <laughs> did you uh did your buddy have knives or did uh, what you use to cut it I was going to say, I used, a, I learned the value of a sharp knife. Um, I used a knife that actually my dad gave me when I started deer hunting a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I don't, I couldn't tell you the brand or when it was made or anything like that, but, um, you know, it's a solid knife. I believe it was, it was my grandpa's prior to that. And so when I started hunting, he said, you know, I have this buck knife that I don't use very much anymore. So he gave it to me. So that's the one I brought, and then luckily that was the one I got to you. So that is us. That is awesome. Well, um, so we're, we'll jump into the conversation with Jeb. Before I forget, though, I will mention. I think I mentioned it in in the conversation too, but we will be giving away a bony knife from Mister Jeb Taylor. And uh, Matt, I'd I'd say that you could register for us but uh but i don't think as part of the team you're 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 eligible but, yeah I'm, uh, these... a little, <laughs> I'm a little sad that i don't get the chance to win that thing that looks really nice it is it is in the hand here i'm holding it it's like it is a it's a nice knife yeah and uh so it's it's a it's pretty neat i think this whole this whole knife making trend that's going on and the artisans that are doing it it's really fun to hear their stories and see their work so uh, let's listen to the conversation with Jeb Taylor. 
Hey everyone, this is Mark. Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today I am joined by Jeb Taylor. And uh, Jeb and I connected up, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, something like that. And um, and he's got a really interesting background that I think uh, you'll find interesting today. So Jeb, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing real good. I had a pretty good morning, so I can't complain. That's that's good. Um, so you are a knife maker, uh, as is is a passion of yours. It's sort of part of your part of your lifestyle, right? It's not your full time vocation. Is that is that correct? Uh, that is correct. I was uh, I was in the army for about twenty years, and I retired, and I I needed something else to do after I got out, and I went to school for uh, to be a tool and die maker. And I work at a, as a machinist here in uh, Rochester, Minnesota. Okay, okay. So, uh, what it, all t- different types of things you're machining? Uh, I mostly work in uh, the milling department, so running uh, gotcha. CNC mills from big giant ones, like as big as a living room to big as a refrigerator. <laughs> gotcha. So it uh, ties in well with with knife making too. I'm presuming in terms of uh, the, your work. Absolutely. There's it was. Uh, there's a reason why I went in that direction. I'd I'd already started making knives, and I know I enjoyed manufacturing and metalworking a lot. So that's what sort of set me on that course. So you ta- you mentioned on your on your website uh, a, a moment of getting a Swiss Army knife as a kid, and and your fascination. Uh, or or love of knives, sort of starting then, and I, I that really resonated with me because I can still remember uh, the first Swiss Army knife I got when I was a kid. It was a Wenger, which I was never a fan of. I liked Victorinox better, but uh, that was my that was my first one, and I just remember getting that for Christmas and being a young kid, you know, wanting to. You know whether it was whittling a stick or, or uh, you know, uh, field dress an animal. It, there's just something about a knife that I thought was great. So, you know, what was it for you that that really sort of kindled your love in in these these uh, these items? I think I've always been someone who really connected to physical objects, which kind of sounds shallow, but I have things from when I was a kid still. I, I For some reason, I'm able to like keep a hold of things and keep care of them for very long periods of time. And I got it, and I just thought it was great. I took, I don't know, at least three days before I cut myself. And <laughs> I think it was just a world of possibilities. It's kind of a pivotal moment, like before and after having a tool or a capability. Like once you've cut something, you're like the rest of my life, I can cut something. And I just thought they're pretty fascinating. And next thing you know, I had like this little um, McDonald's gave away these little plastic briefcase looking things with the Happy Meal. I had like one of those full of just, you know, mostly crappy little imported knives. And then as adult male family members begin passing away, I, somehow I became the, uh, the repository for all old pocket knives in my family. <laughs> just as someone who liked them. And uh, to this day, still, I get a lot of knives from people who I don't even know that well. And they'll just be like, I knew you liked knives and I wanted them to go somewhere where they'd be happy. That is great. I was just trying to look here. I've got, oh, there it is right there. To your point, there is an, uh, 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 was it Uncle Henry, Old Henry? Was the, what's the name uh, of that? Uh, Uncle Henry and Old Timer. Uncle Henry, no. Yeah, Old Timer. There you go. I combined them. Actually, this is a browning, but I do have, I've got my dad's. Uh, pocket knife that he carried for many years and uh here's a here's one that uh this is my daughter's pocket knife that uh, we bought out in missoula montana several years ago when we were out there so yeah i mean i I, we've got obviously you and i have a similar philosophy there on on uh, a love of these tools but you also talked about um sort of another moment when you were older was when you were deployed i believe in, in the philippines right and yes. you saw some guy making making a knife in the middle of the jungle. Was that was that sort of the moment when yeah. you decided, I want to I want to do this? It, it was definitely I, I saw him do it. Where I was down in the southern Philippines, and uh, he was just really the village blacksmith, and he would make a lot of knives and cutting materials and just garden tools for kind of people working in agriculture. And uh, over there, like every island area has like its own knife design. They're very uh, 
they're very linked to certain areas, but he had this one large leaf shaped bolo he was making. And I saw him doing that and I was like, I could do that. I mean, I had a lot of, a lot of downtime with a lot of boredom and I thought it was great. And I, I bet I bought like 10 knives from him. And at that point I, I didn't jump in. I didn't want to like, you know, in, I didn't want to kind of insert myself to his world, you know, as, as, as a burden, but I was like, I can make a knife. I mean, I can do anything, right? I'm an American. And uh, so this is kind of like the, this is like 2008 or nine. YouTube was not what it is today. But I got back and I started looking at YouTube videos and I bought like a really cheap grinder from Harbor Freight. And I made this thing and it was not the quality of a quality tent pole. It was horrible. It was just a horrible <laughs> knife. And uh, I had it. I didn't really know about metal work, but I didn't know there's a powder coat nearby. So I had this horrible knife, but I had it powder coated because <laughs> the, it, the guy was like, if you wait until I use the color black, I'll do it for free. He's like, I'm not setting up a powder coat for you, but if you if you want black, I'll just do it for free, man. I was like, all right, so it looks visually good. Um, North Carolina had a very uh, historically active uh, custom knife makers guild, and they're on the, the the internet there. And I looked them up, and they would meet quarterly in kind of central North Carolina. And I started going to their meetings there, and they had. You know, both meetings and classes and then uh, great mentorship also. I had um, – North Carolina probably has, I would argue, the best – the highest concentration of the best knife makers in America right now are in North Carolina. Um, I'm sure Texas would argue because Texas likes to argue. But I think if you really did the math, North Carolina outpaces most of the country. And Texans think everything's bigger there. You know? They so do. They got the, more uh, of everything. So. They, they, you know, they also have a pretty robust knife makers guild just for Texas. But I had some world class knife makers go out of their way to be just super kind to me and um, kind of guide me down my path and let me work in their shops and take their wisdom from them. And it definitely changed the arc of my life. Um, doing something, doing doing something new and not being very successful at it is. Uh, it's not a good recipe for, you know, like long-term success, but having, you know, some great makers, you know, give you those tips and directions early on um, allows you to advance a lot faster. So you came back after your deployment and you were living in North Carolina yeah, and and started making there. And then how did you end up in, in Minnesota? I married a Minnesota girl. Oh, that's, that's how it happens usually. Yeah, exactly. And when I retired, she says, uh, we're moving to Minnesota. You should come with me. So <laughs> the, uh, the, she's, my, my, I'm pretty lucky. Uh, my wife has a giant family here in Minnesota, and she uh, she followed me around everywhere, and I like it here. I think all my, all my heritage is from Northern Europe, so I do not enjoy the heat at all. So I like it here. <laughs> Well, we got a lot of cold. Um, so you started with that first knife. Now, like what kind of a uh, – with that first knife you powder-coated – did you mean you just powder-coated the handle, I'm presuming? or, or uh, the, the, whole, no, the whole thing. The whole and then thing. I, did, I did like a 550 cord wrap on it. You know, okay. I, just, I just I did like a, some cox combing on it and made a, a rope handle out of it. And Okay. The uh, – it is. I gave it to my dad. I think for Father's Day, because you know he's my. Here's your dad. He'll always be like, "Oh, that's great." And then I got that back when he passed away. The uh, so it's like <laughs> the repository of my old knife at that point. So how many at this point in time? How many knives have you made? Do you have any idea? Um, I'd say I don't know. I've put out a couple hundred a year for a past few years. So I'd say maybe sub thousand, but. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. Probably seven, somewhere in the seven fifty to a thousand range. Okay, okay. Yeah. And you, and you've, um, you started. You said making like a tactical or more of a military type knife, but you've transitioned into doing what you you really are passionate about because you hunt, you fish, yeah. and and you wanted to make more uh, butchering and and kitchen type knives that that are really good for working with meat and other things, right? I did. I, uh, I had great success um, when I was in the army. I was a paratrooper, and uh, on every on every you know chalk on the aircraft, there's a jump master, and he's the one responsible to make sure uh, the jumpers are all rigged properly and they get out the door safely. 
and they always carry a knife on your cab, you know, an exposed knife. If someone gets caught in their own equipment, they'll cut that equipment so you'll fall free from the aircraft. And I was a jump master and I was a knife maker and all jump masters have to carry a knife. So I was like, I'm going to make my own jump master knife. And I made some iterations of it and I had friends who were also jump masters and they would, you know, I'd have them test them out for me and they got progressively better and better. And then they got to a kind of a definitive point where I started manufacturing them on a larger scale. And that's where I had my first success in manufacturing. Uh, It's kind of a hard transition to go from just a hobby of, I like to make something to occupy my time for joy to a business model. And the, uh, you can, you can, you know, you can only, you can only, you can only sell things on your own personal network for so long (laughs) or, (laughs) just accept the fact you're just going to give things away. And I, I liked what I was doing. I enjoy the prototype, uh, the prototyping more. Um, I don't like to make uh, customized knives. I'd rather make, you know, a hundred of the same knife through five different versions of 20 each and tweak it and advance it and see how it's made. And that's what I like about uh, kind of manufacturing. Um, I know some guys who are like, I hate making the same knife more than once. And that's, that's how they are. You know, like they're, you know, everyone's different. Well, let's talk about that for a moment because we're definitely in this era of, of craft that is, that has come back of which I, I sort of look at, 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 at the knife makers within the same space. And I think the way you just described is similar to what I've heard different brewers talk about also. You know, I've got in my neighborhood here, I've got one brewery that has their staples. Like they're, they're just making that thing. They've refined it. It's the same, it's the same IPAs. It's the same lagers uh, that they, they've had for years. There's another one, the other direction from my house where they don't do the same beer twice. And it's, and it is that experimentation. And sometimes it's really good. And I'll tell you, sometimes yeah. it's not. Um, but what, um, when, when has there been this big renaissance within the, the, the knife making space and this craft and, and where did that come out of and, and what types of, what types of people are doing it? I think no matter what, if you look at some like, you know, interest chart in America, some sort of heat map in knives, like at least on a linear scale, um, no matter what, I think the show Forged in Fire has to have a great influence mm. on knife uh, on the knife community, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, it just was very large influencing. I, uh, I remember it. You know, it came out right when I started making knives. I, I obviously watched it. I mean, the uh, it was it was cool, and I I, I was pretty fortunate uh, to get to know a lot of the people who were on the first maybe five seasons. I have friends on there. I get to train under one of the hosts. Uh, so it, it, it was definitely, it definitely influenced me. I don't like to forge blades though. So like the, uh, I get asked, I don't know, at least every time I meet somebody new, like, have you heard of forge and fire? You should go on there. And I would be that guy crying on the show. Like I would lose in like 30, like I'm super slow and meticulous <laughs> and they're like three hours and I'd break something. I'd be crying like, Oh, let my family down. <laughs> you know, that would be me. I'd be that contestant who screwed it all up because that is not where I thrive. I thrive in like silence and time. <laughs> and I'm just not a good, I'm not good at forging knives like that so i would yeah. be a horrible contestant i would never go on the show i i salute all those who do um <laughs> i think i think the gamut of skill is definitely on some episodes uh i've seen shows with like guys who are already like well-known masters and they'll have like a fatal error that could just happen and it kind of looks for them like they're not very good when like they're really are super good knife makers but under the under the kind of the the confines of being on a game show, they're not good knife makers, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that totally, that totally makes sense. What, what, you know, if you look at the, at the knife making community uh, overall, I mean, what, how does it break out of those who like to do a uh, larger volume of the same knife versus the one-offs? Um, I would say, I, I would, I'd say maybe, I'd say until you get good at it, you have to do lower volume because there's just a lot of money tied up in volume. Um, when you start looking at it like a legitimate like business, um, that's kind of when you need to make some 
you know, you figure out what your product is. But I would say it breaks down into people who like to forge blades, um, people who just do just stock removal, um, people who do make folding knives. That's sort of you know it's it's, its own its own skill set where. Really, at that point, the knives aren't as dramatic. It's the mechanisms to hold the knives where the, most of the guys will put more more effort into, you know, the the frames and the you know the, the handle material. The, the knives at that point, oftentimes, are really simple, um, but a lot of you know effort and engraving. And then you have like kind of art knife makers who are just you know, you know, in, you know, inlaying, wall hangers. Yeah, like they're inlaying diamonds. And oh. you know things, things of that nature, and gold, and like engraved gold, and you know it's like this is probably not going to end up inside an animal ever in its right, life. Right, right. Um, I'd say that's kind of more how it breaks down. So how about how about the, these craft knives? Let's say a Jeb Taylor knife versus uh, a big uh, mass manufactured knife, of which probably the majority are made in China these days. Um, how would you differentiate those and, and what they are? Um, so for, you know, I mostly, I, I like to work with, uh, butcher knives and kitchen knives. So obviously when it comes to butcher knives, butcher knives commercially, you know, the manufacturer you have like victory out of New Zealand and F Dick out of Germany and Dexter Russell and a few others, the knives are to other knife makers. They're really not, I don't want to put them down. They're made to be used as a disposable tool. Like when, when, when Dexter Russell puts out a knife out there, I don't think they even imagine it being passed down for generations anymore. It's an injection molded handle. It's National Sanitation found NSF safe. So it's this monolithic injection molded handle, usually white or something. You know, um, A lot of commercial knives when you buy them, like if you go and if you bought a chef's knife at Bed Bath & Beyond, you go get like a Hankel or a Wurstoff. What it is is they don't know who their end user is so they're gonna make their knife so that it is more uh resistant to actual damage to the knife and with knives a lot of that is how hard the knife is they will um heat treat them there's this thing called the rockwell scale it's, it's a scale of hard things it's not like jello to diamonds it's metal to metal so but on the Rockwell scale, let's say it goes up to 70, you go buy a lot of commercial knives and especially butcher knives. And then if you get into cheap, cheap knives, they won't even heat treat a lot of these knives. They won't, you know, you know, thermally treat the knife to make it very, very hard. It's just thin. So you can always sharpen thin, but that's why you have to keep sharpening it every five minutes because it's not hard. Um, most, you know, a lot of off-the-shelf knives will start at, you know, 50 for butcher's knives and then just commercial kitchen cutlery about 55. I aim for 59 to 60, and then on chef's knives, I aim for like 61 to 62 on this Rockwell scale. So they're a lot harder proportionately. Um, but with that, they become more susceptible to damage. But I suppose people buying my knives understand it's not like you're giving somebody a knife for their wedding gift that they didn't ask for, and now they're just you know chucking it in a dishwasher. I'd say most people, when they're going to buy some fine cutlery as a tool that could be passed down generation or they're going to treat these a lot better. Hey listeners, this is Mark, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that in the coming days, we're going to open up registration for our Upland Bird Hunting course on Hunting Camp Live. And this could be your opportunity to take part in a self-paced online masterclass with support from live interactive webinars and our outdoor mentor community. If this sounds like it might be something for you or maybe a friend who's been thinking about starting to hunt, just go to modcarn.com forward slash Upland Birds to get more information. Now there's a limited class size, so make sure you check it out today so you can reserve your spot. Now back to the podcast. So you're a hunter. T talk about hunting, hunting knives and the different types, because I think for a lot of people who are new to hunting, uh, they they may not have really thought about knives in the past, and it's an important tool in your kit. And so, what do you think are the important knives to consider, and 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 what and then how does that fit in with what you make? Well, I think yeah, I think it is the second most important you know tool in your kit because you know you're out there hunting, you're practicing, you're waiting. You're, maybe this is the first time you've ever shot something, and now oh my gosh, I have to do something with it. You don't want to be back at your house with a box cutter and a pair of scissors, you know, trying to get into it. Um, 
you have different every, every knife is uh is i would say if, if you had to have one knife i'd just go with a general blade anything called like a hunting knife something you know maybe five inches with it with a with a with a point something something, something pointier is easier to manage if, if it's kind of a straight spine and a point uh when you start to see knives that have like a big sweep to them a lot of people aren't good at using those because they can't visualize where that tip is going to be. If the tip is in line with the spat, you know, uh, with the spine, it's a lot better to use if you're not familiar with uh, with cut the cutting process. Um, because the tip is always in line with the way you're holding it. It's not, you know, trailing on a big sweeping blade. It's actually, an, you know, an inch behind where you think it is, and that can be problematic. So if you had a one knife, just a hunting knife. I think Buck makes the model one ten. Um, they make a bajillion of them. It's a great knife. They do great work. It's made by one of the best knife makers. I mean, he obviously he's been dead, but that that business is a very high standard that they maintain. It's a great knife. It will not lead you astray. Um, and it's a quintessential hunting knife, about five inches long and uh, you know, uh, uh, not a drop point, but just you know, it has a point that's easy to manage. So avoiding the big sweep. Also, you know, what are your thoughts on? Uh, on size, you mentioned five inch, which which I, I I agree. I remember a few years ago, uh, you'd go into some of the big box outdoor retailers, and and then several of them I saw these. Uh, Winchester had obviously just just sold off the rights to their name on a knife, and they'd have like this. It was like a Bowie on steroids. I think yeah. the thing was this big, and I could see somebody making the mistake of thinking, "Oh, that's a hunting knife." I think, I, I mean, if I would just tell anybody just a rule of thumb, I would say no more than maybe two inches past your extended finger when holding it, because when your hand's actually down in there, I mean, you don't want your you don't want you don't want to be shorter than your finger because you're fishing your hand out on there in the dark and you're trying to get around like a windpipe or something. Um, the blade's gonna catch, so really, yeah, hold it. I would say because you're gonna put your hand on the spine of it no matter what. Like it's gonna happen. Like you, you hold it, but when it's dark and you want to go home, your finger's going to end up on the spine of that knife. So maybe two inches past the tip of your finger is good. But I would say I don't like knives that are shorter than your finger that would allow your hand to go up over the top of it. Um, I see a lot of disposable razor blade styles. I don't like them. Razor blades aren't as sharp as people think they are. Um, There's a lot sharper things than a razor blade. Um, They're very thin. They they dull out. I think people are – I think they're convenient because – you know, you can just dispose of it and throw on another one, but like a high quality steel, like you're not going to have to dispose of it and learning to sharpen a knife is very feasible. But I think. Yeah. That, I, I haven't been, a, I haven't been a big fan of those either of the, of the switch out. Uh, I know some people swear by them. It's uh, but I just, I'd rather have a, have a true, true knife <laughs> rather yeah. than this change out. How about, so, you know, actually, this is a good opportunity. Uh, so, how about how about um, handles? And I have got here in front of me oh. an official <laughs> Jeb Taylor knife, which you were kind enough to send me. And so that everyone who's listening knows, we're actually going to do a giveaway of this knife. Um, so, talk a little bit about what I am holding here. And uh, and also, I guess tied in with this, we talked about the blade a bit. What about the handle and and what materials you use and what you think makes makes a good material for a handle? I think so. For these types of knife, uh, I may I don't use screw on handles. Um, it's just sort of a personal choice. the The handle I make, I tell people not to submerge them because it shouldn't be a challenge, but it's. It's monolithic. They're, uh, those pins fit within half of a thousandth of a piece. Of, there's half of a thousandth clearance all the way around that pin. So a piece of paper is three thousandths. So one sixth of a piece of paper around this. That pin is forced through that hole. And then I put uh, a, uh, a pretty stout uh, epoxy on there. So it's almost a, a solid piece handle. I just want it to be cleanable um is 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 the way i view it like if this gets gross and you're going to want to clean it it's i use it's called g10 it's just a fabric it's a it's a high density uh fiberglass very similar to what circuit boards are printed on 
Um, hmm. It has some other industry names. It's used a lot in industry, um, just instead of metal. It's, it's pretty, you know, you can withstand a lot of temperature and it's lightweight, but it's still rigid, so you can do things with it. Uh, these colors are custom made. You know, you know circuit boards are just brown because that's just their the natural color of the fibers they use. Um, but I don't use screw on handles um, because I think that that you know you got some grime and stuff down there. The uh, I think uh, wood works also good. Um, some people use a type of this material that has a texture on it. Um, I could see maybe someday doing that. I just never have, uh, th that kind of diamondy traction texture. I, for my hand, it just, if you look at this knife, you'll know everything that Jeb Taylor likes about knives, because this is my favorite knife I ever made. And this is the one I put the most thought. So this is exactly what I think a boning knife should look like. Um, so this is a boning knife. This so is a boning gonna... knife. So this is designed to break down an animal off of its joints so that it can be moved uh, and then broken down. What is it? I think these technical term, the primal cuts. You know, this 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 is there to break an animal down, and it's designed and it's pretty rugged. If you looked at the profile, it looks just like a fillet knife, almost very similar, but it's about three times thicker than a fillet knife would ever be. Um, mm -hmm. I this is a stiff boning knife, maybe medium to stiff, but it's definitely not a flexible boning knife. Um, because I think that that is better. I find that I end up using the side of the blade a lot to move things around as I'm working. Um, so I'll use that to just extend the hand and to push things out of the way and to open up cavities. The uh, Everywhere on it, I've kind of rounded. When I make it, I, want, I don't want there to be anything sharp on there but the blade. So no matter where your hand falls, I've rounded it. I'd say that is... All. When you're starting into like large production knives and more custom, um, just the fit and finish of every surface being sanded, like there's not one edge on here that I have not sanded so that it is not sharp um, when it you know when it gets cut. So it's 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 designed to just feel good in the hand. Uh, the tip up there is very stout because if you're gonna be moving around and you're gonna be working through bones and cutting out cartilage, you know. To, uh, break off a quarter uh, you're going to hit some bone like no matter what it's going to hit some bone so the tip is designed to bounce you know stick into it and not snap so that was going to be my question because this design is interesting it almost has a little bit of a flat uh, section here on the tip is that yeah. is that something unique that you do or i've never seen that before so the uh in, in japanese knives they have this the, the tanto style um, if you ever look at Japanese Tonto, and, and America yep. really makes this very, the Ameri they almost call it the American Tonto. Um, but what it's good for was, is, was for piercing, the, uh, because it could pierce without breaking. And I put that on there. It's a knife. I mean, it's a series of triangles. There's only so much you can do, but that was just my flair. And I liked, I like to use it just for punching into things without having to worry about it breaking. So that's why... I, um, I put that flat on there because uh, it will not break no matter, you know, how inaccurate I am. So you got, you got the bony knife, you've got a general hunting knife. What are yeah. the others, you know, like a caping knife and, and, and others? Do you make any of those? Um, I made, uh, I made a lot of uh, bullnose butchers, which are, okay. you know, it's like a longer blade and it has more weight on the end and it's designed for, you know, swinging and chopping more. Like it has the weight so it can be swung into something. Um, and then it's long because it's going to, it's going to cut on those long pull strokes and some push strokes, but it's designed for, you know, for breaking down larger cuts of meat, getting them into individual, you know, usable cuts, like what you're going to actually serve to somebody. Um, I made a lot of skinning knives. So, you look uh, skinning knives. The uh, your hunting knives. Skinning knives kind of fall into two. You have they, they're going to have a big uh, swept blade, no matter who makes them. Like the quintessential, I think, is like the Green River skinning knife. Uh, the ones I always made was really just my interpretation of that knife, and it has that big, large sweep, and it's pretty wide because you know the wider the knife is, you can make a more sharp triangle. The uh, if, if, if you look at a knife as a pyramid, the more short and fat it is, uh, the less, you know, I mean, they're still going to be sharp, but it's not going to be as sharp. As, 
you know, if you imagine, you know, one knife is a pyramid and one knife is the uh, Washington Monument. That Washington Monument knife is so tall that it's going to have a lot more narrow space up at the top that you can actually sharpen through. The the pyramid shaped knife is going to be fine to chop. It's going to be more like an axe, but yeah. you start getting fatter a lot faster. And that's all sharpening is doing is readjusting that those those serrations and making the pyramid shorter and fatter. And you get a certain point in every knife where you kind of get past the point of perfection. Now, professional butchers get to that. Most people don't get to that, but you can pretty rapidly if you're doing a lot of aggressive sharpening that's removing metal. So um, what do you think for, for the average person who's, you know, uh, going to be hunting whitetail, they're going to be hunting antelope, maybe elk, um, like, and they're going to they're gonna be doing all their processing themselves. Yeah. What do you think? One, two, three knives what, and, and, and what type is, think, is sort of the core? Well, I, I would tell anybody this. You take a deer and you go take it to be processed and look what knife they use to actually break it down. And those are the <laughs> They're there doing it. They can do whatever they want. They have act. They have the internet, and they have money, and they can get what they want. And they're going to use a boning knife, right? That's and all they a, use. I've seen. And, and, and there's a reason for that because it works. It works yeah. the best. That's what it was designed for: is to break down things. Um, the second one I would say would be a skinning knife. Um, if you want to, if you if you want to do some hide management, um, a skinning knife works good because. Uh, that long sweep allows you to kind of move your hand, just make that sweep, and you can pull the skin off, and you can cut through that fascia that you know connects the skin to the meat. And that long sweeping blade is it's designed perfectly. That sweeping motion connects the two um, very good. So I would say a skinning knife and a boning knife are the combo that everyone could use because whether or not you're gonna you know process all the meat yourself, um, you still have to you know manage it, and those two things will manage the uh, the physical uh, structure of the animal and the skin if that's something you're interested in man in taking care of the hide um, it will do that for you so that's the two knife combo yeah I I, w- I couldn't agree more you know the only other one I, I think about like I've got an old knife I don't even know what it would be called that that my dad used for for butchering it's it's it is about that long what what mm-hmm. were you you talking about the bull nose shape uh, what did you call that what kind of knife? If a bullnose butcher, then you have another one. If it's just long with a long sweep to it, like a scimitar yeah. style blade, yeah, um, probably it looks like a cavalry, like a tiny like cavalry saber. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, and, almost. Yeah, it's, it's scimitar, and that and that would be the third one because at that point you're breaking things into individual portions, and that's the kind of the third knife, and that's why your dad used it because that's what it's for. It's really long, and it's yep. there to to break down these individual portions and cuts. It's a great, it's a great knife for like larger roasts. That's yep. what I like it for. If I'm cutting down big muscle groups, it's just nice to have yep. that large sweep. You're going to get a nice even cut versus something jaggedy. Exactly. So I like and that. So number one, bony, number two, skinning, and then the sim- scimitar. Huh? A scimitar, a breaking knife, okay. or, a, or just any okay. butcher knife. It's so long yeah. so that you can, you know, you've got the, when you start, when you start that cut, and it's not going the way you want to. You don't want to have to pick up and re-pull. It has that extra length, so you can just do it all in one. Sushi chefs have – there's a lot of very specific knives made for sushi chefs because they don't believe in only cutting on the pull. Mm. So they know that when they start this cut, if you if you can't ever pick up and start again, you have to have this two-foot-long knife so that you've got that extra foot to get down through whatever you're cutting in one pull. And it's the same with um, – same with all meat it's better to do in one cut than you know you didn't get the jagged effect and it will look like you butchered it as opposed to a butcher butchering it yeah yeah absolutely so how about how about sharpening i know that's something that's that's uh everybody has an opinion on on the best way to do it you know i've i've got a a three stone system the width that I use with oil. I've also got, you know, like a diamond, uh, you know, just a diamond sharpening block and different things. And, um, you know, versus, you know, you've got a steel in the kitchen. I'd be curious how many people actually use the steel that's in their butcher block, but what, what are your, what are your thoughts on sharpening? I have a lot of them. The, uh, first off the steel, I think the steel was invented by the knife industry to sell more knives because I think <laughs> more people do more catastrophic to their knives 
uh, with a steel than anything. Um, they work very good if you know what you're doing and you understand. So you look, imagine you're looking down a knife and you're looking at the top of the pyramid. So when you sharpen it, you're, 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 some of the, the makers already defined the angles. Those are already put into the knife. You can't change that. So what you're doing is you're wearing away just a little bit below the very edge of the knife on both sides. And it's wearing it away so that it forms this wire edge. It's grinding it away till the very, very cutting edge becomes floppy. And this is on like a microscopic level. Um, and it has these, you know, depending on the steel and the way it's heat treated, um, the metal has this teeth. And that's what's actually, you know, cutting across the meat is this, these exposed fragmented teeth is what they look like underneath a microscope. So when you sharpen it, you're, you're either, if, if you're fixing it, you're removing like chips and gouges. There's different ways. So the, I if I don't even know where to begin because I have so much to say. Um, <laughs> when I make a chef's knife, I use a three stone. Uh, it, it's it's two inch by eleven inch. It's an Dan's Arkansas whetstone. Yeah. Um, and it's three. It's a coarse grit, a medium, and a fine grit. That's what I use to do chef's knives that have to be perfect. Like, this is going out. They're very expensive. They're going to someone who's very much into knives. I use that. That's what I use right there because if you, it's really hard to mess it up is what it is. Like, it, it, it's so safe because you're doing everything real time. Um, if, you're, if, if, if it's already a knife and it hasn't really experienced trauma, you don't need to use the coarse, in my opinion, very often. Like the coarse, the, the, the coarse portion of a knife is for like reestablishing an edge or something's gone wrong or if you're trying to get through a nick or a burr. Um, but if the knife is already sharp and you're trying to touch it up, the finest setting might do very well just for you. Um, when it comes to meat and meat only, the sharpest knife is not always the best. Um, there's entire internet forums full of people who just sharpen knives. That's all they like. It, it's its own hobby, sharpening knives. But you know, proteins, especially you know, like red meat, um, does not always respond to the highest level of sharpening uh, because it becomes too smooth to get those 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 th that micro crystalline structure to actually grip onto the meat the same way. Um, but the, the whetstone works good. The Spiderco makes their tri-sharp system. It's two rods. It's these ceramic rods. And they just sit at like a 20 and 25 degree angle. And you just drag them down straight through. And it works very, very good. Like I said, you can't mess it up because it goes so slow. And that's good for whatever you're doing. Is just because you can do it in real time. And you can see what you're doing. Next time you're sharpening your knife, wherever you are, if you haven't done a lot of it, just take a sharpie and put black along all along the edge of the blade, where you're where, right where you're the cutting surface of the blade, just like a little eighth inch sharpie. Let it sit there and dry, and then start sharpening, and then you can visually see what you're actually sharpening. The uh, you'll you'll know, and knowing your heart, you only really want to work with that very edge, and you want it to be as kind of an oblique. Oh, what's the right word? You want it. You don't want it to be. You don't want to make a butter knife. You're trying to make it, you know, thin it even more and more right behind the cutting edge. So put that Sharpie on there and you can see what you're actually doing. And if you do it on like a, like a Spyderco Tri-Sharp, you put it on there and you'll see where it's going away. If you do it on Whetstone, you'll see where it's going away. The Work Shark system I see for sale, it's uh, designed by, I think, a guy named Ken Onion, who's like the godfather of knife making. I think they're really good and they work really good for people. But, dot, dot, dot. If you're not careful, you can ruin a knife really quick because it's a mini belt grinder. And if you put the coarse grid on there and you don't keep it moving, uh, I've seen some people that kind of do some catastrophic things to their knives with, with that style because they didn't keep it moving or they paused for a second or it caught up or something. So if you're using one of those, just remember you have to keep the knife moving because it's a tiny belt sander is what you're using. Um, for commercial knives, I use I have, you know, grinders that i use for my knives that's what i set the blades on mine i use a 120 grit uh belt and it's got to be brand new um and i use it for three knives uh no I, yeah pretty much three knives and then i just throw the belt away or i don't throw it away i just use it for wood 
and then I use a 400 grit belt and that's all my, and then after that, I'll put it on the ceramic rods. I'll strop it on there and then I'll go against the leather strop. And that's all I do to sharpen knives for meat. Um, those little sharpeners you see that look like a keychain that just have two rod, rods in the shape of a V. Um, those will get your knife sharp right then, but they're so, they're just pieces of carbide down in there. And, the, uh, you can do a lot of damage to a blade and it's not the best edge. It's kind of like we're making something sharp. It's not as good as the knife could be. And if you try and switch from that, um, it can do a lot of damage. I'd just say the, if you see the little like keychain style knife sharpeners with the ceramic rods, those are better. The two little white rods, those do a lot better than if you just see this weird metal looking stuff in there. Um, those yeah. can do a lot of damage. <laughs> So a lot, a lot of those kits out there, a lot of those hunting knife kits have those little keychain type of ones that little, yeah. little two rod sharpers. Yeah. I usually see them. It seems like they've usually got the ceramic rods. Yeah. Is that, you know, if you're out in the field and, and wanting to, to get a, a new edge on your, on your blade, do you think that's one of the best ways or is, how do you, how do you sharpen if you're out in the field? The uh, I, I I would recommend yeah those those are good to get a, qu a quick touch up or if you know you just drug like your knife across a bone or something you can just feel that you've done something to it that's a great way because it's going to keep it very symmetrical and that around twenty degrees is pretty much where most knives are I mean you maybe have five degrees either way you might be like you know twenty five to fifteen but most knives are at that twenty degrees is about the established geometric sweet spot for a knife. So that's a great way. That's what I'd recommend. Something like that, or if just if if, if you know how to just use the little stick stick sharpeners, ceramic rods, those work too. Um, if you're using more than a ceramic rod, you're kind of really getting into knife repair at that point, in my in my opinion. So yeah. I think any one of those little ceramic rod kits are good just for a quick touch up. So what kind of uh, what kind of projects do you have coming up? Are you uh, are you making any interesting knives right now? I've I saw like you said I love the, this material that you talked about on the, on this handle. This feels really good in my hand. But I did see like you had some beautiful knives. I saw you're, you're working with Damascus on some and some wood handled. It looked like it was almost like a spalted wood or something. Is that yeah, a lot of them are. Uh, there's a lot of amazing wood. Uh... They make amazing wood. They'll, they'll dye it and they'll kind of reverse dye it and heat it and inject epoxy and harden it. So they're, you know, they're filling all the voids in the wood with uh, with a clear resin to make it um, as, as hard and stable as, as it can. The uh, And there's some great ones out there. I think I'm going to start working on a large slicer. And I don't know if it's going to be a Simtar style kind of the big you know uh, sweep to it or just a bullnose butcher kind of my interpretation of a bullnose butcher uh knives if you look at knives throughout history they're a reflection of what could be made at that time and they all used to be made on these giant wheels they, they would grind them all sides they'd profile them they'd be partially forged um, and then ground on these giant giant wheels like some of these wheels are like six eight feet and they would stand above them um, so these wheels, you can only make things straight, but with modern technology, we can put a lot of radiuses into things. That's the hardest thing to do in metalworking is consistently cut a radius into a material. Um, but it's not that hard anymore. So it's sort of, I, it was anything, it's your interpretation, but it's my interpretation of a bullnose butcher has been floating around in my head for a couple years now. I've got it sketched out. I just need to do the CAD work for it. And then, um, probably have about maybe you know 10 or so uh water jet cut and then go from there and make sure they work because you can have an absolute beautiful looking knife idea and it might be just a garbage knife the uh, maybe just have the geometry all wrong so you have to you have to you know make your prototypes and i've got a few people who have come to know some are butchers and cooks and i let them test my knives before anybody sees them um, and, and get their feedback as to whether or not it's good that's a good idea. So this next year, maybe uh, you'll have a, a bulldoze butcher similar in, in the lineup yeah. along with the others. So, okay. Okay, cool. Well, if somebody is interested in checking out your knives, where uh, where would they go? Um, obviously the website, uh, if you go to, well, 
not many guys named Jeb Taylor out there. So if you go to look Jeb Taylor dives, you'll you'll find my website. Um, I, I'm I do business through website. Then I do Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I'm not you know I'm not good enough looking to be immediately likable. So I don't do very good on the Instagram or anything, but I try and it's, it's, it's nice to meet. I, I meet a lot, awful lot of people. So I, I do enjoy that. And that's where I post most of my knife stuff there. Or if you're in Rochester, just go to the website. You can give me a call. The, uh, I talk, I talk to people about knives all the time. So you're in a, yeah, you're in a, a, a an interesting, good area, Rochester, Minnesota, good trout fishing. You, you were telling me you, you live on, on the South end of town for a reason down near the Driftless and all those good trout streams. Right at, right, right at the headwaters of the Western side of the Driftless. Yep. I'm probably about 25 minutes away from them right now. So no, that's it, great. It's a good place to be. Well, and everybody who's listening, don't forget, uh, I'll put in the show notes uh, the opportunity to register to win this knife right here, this bony knife, which I've got in my hand, and it is, uh, it's it's a nice, nice tool. So um, thanks so much, Jeb. I'm going to have to uh, get one of my own or one of these and uh, and order that up, and I, I appreciate you coming on, and and we'll probably do something else sometime because I think uh, knives are, are is something that people have asked about. They don't know a whole lot about sometimes, and and I think it's a it's a fascinating discussion. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.